Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Zoopla's Head of Research, Gronya Gilmore. Welcome, Gronya. Thank you very much, Rod. So I guess it's probably best to start with a bit of background as to how you got into a career in research. Uh, that's a good question, Rod, because where I actually started at the beginning of my career was in Bloomberg writing about economics and politics on the, news, the newsroom floor. And then I joined the Times money section to be an editorial assistant and it went from there. So after about 10 years at the Times writing about economics, politics, finance, mortgages, housing, I joined Mike Frank in their research team and that's really where it started. That was about 10 years ago and then I moved to Zoopla about two years ago. So the, the kind of move from journalism into research, especially residential research, felt like on the surface it feels like a similar sort of move because you're talking about the narrative of the housing market you're trying to inform your customers your clients the wider market everyone who's involved in housing which is all of us because we all live somewhere you're trying to tell them what's going on what are the factors affecting the market but underneath the skills needed for both are, are slightly different as you will appreciate because when you move into these companies they have much bigger data abilities and the, the data that they have access to makes um, the job of writing that narrative about the market it, it really makes it very exciting indeed yeah i think i think it's fascinating especially kind of well i suppose the relationship between journalism and also data and and, and maybe how, how much data has shifted in the way in which we get it now it seems to be kind of I don't want to say readily available, but more readily available than maybe it was 10 years and 20 years ago. Uh, certainly, in, I think in the residential markets, in the, in the property industry, the commercial markets were always very data-led because of the investment involved, obviously, in the residential sector as well, but very large investment houses and uh, commercial operations involved in the commercial side of things. So data was always very important because it was they were having to measure the performance of these assets against other assets, such as shares. Whereas in the residential market, especially with buy-to-let landlords, much more individuals, that maybe the emphasis on the data in the residential market wasn't quite the same. But I think now we have much more kind of demand for data, not just for the institutional investors who are now involved through Build to Rent, but also from consumers, from, from homeowners, that they want a lot more information. We're in a, there is a lot more opportunity for information to be shared. We're all looking at mini computers in our hands every day. So there's, there's a kind of push and pull factor going on, I think, there. And people just want to feel informed about what is happening with, with what's going on with the biggest asset that they're likely to invest in, in in their lifetime, which is their home. Absolutely. I was going to say, I imagine there would be kind of a bit of a relationship there with the advent of residential becoming more of an investment class in itself. In terms of the portals, obviously, Zoopla being one of the, the largest in the UK, how does data from portals typically differ from 
other sources of data that we see in residential, such as the land registry and ONS. The data from the portals is whole of market, so that puts us on a similar footing as the ONS and some of the biggest mortgage lenders. But what we're able to do is, is maybe garner insights from the data we're seeing much sooner than some of those other organisations, simply because the time the data takes to come in and to be organised, especially on the land reg, are excellent data, but it comes out, it's quite lagging when it comes out. It's quite backward looking. All data to a certain extent is going to be backward looking because we're reporting on what has happened. But we can, you know, there are organisations across the industry which can look at, you know, what's going on right at the moment. And that's certainly true of Zoopla as well. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point on the backward looking kind of phrase that you use, because essentially investment and uh, I know residential on the whole is the, your average person is not looking at their the price of their home purely as, as investment, but it's starting to become much more of an investment class in itself. And investment is all about the forward earnings, forward looking earnings, and being able to use data to make decisions on that. So personally, when I'm looking at an analysis of any kind of investment, getting the backward data is, is great because it tells you the truth about what's happened, you'd hope. Um, but certainly, I think real-time data and understanding what's happening in the short term is, is so, so important. And I think that's where portals like Zoopla can be invaluable, really. Over the pandemic, the residential housing market has been fairly volatile, to say the least, and it's come up with a few surprises. Do you think it's a case of it now just coming back in line with the pre-pandemic long-term trend? Or do you see something else going on in the market? Well, if we think about the sales market to begin with, the level of demand that we saw, and we could see it building during lockdown, we could see it building even as the market was shut. During that first lockdown, if you remember back whenever nothing was allowed to happen. We had the old pounds just before then, didn't we? Exactly. So the demand levels are still very high. They're still well above the five-year average. They are starting to normalise, and we can see that that's probably going to be a trend we um, continue to observe through the rest of this year because we now have more economic conditions going to impact on buyer sentiment and buyer demand. But it's a hard one to discuss because I talk about buyer demand falling but I have to stress that we're still really high compared to the five-year average but it's still really strong and, well, and we're not talking about stamp duty holidays or anything anymore it's still out there people still want to move and isn't that half the problem with looking things at the moment because quite often we benchmark from year to year and so when we're benchmarking I don't know for example London if we said London's rental growth has gotten 15 percent increase in a year but we're benchmarking that against a time where London had just, the rental price had fallen by, I don't know, 10%, for example. You're, you're completely correct, Rod. So we um, we were very careful to talk about this when we put out our rental data. We Again, we were reporting, you know, 12, 13% growth in London, but it had, rents in London had fallen by 10% during the pandemic. Now, this might've been, we, did, we called it out, but the rest of the country, rent, rents were growing. In those city centres, we talked about this sort of, jamless donut you know that the, the suburbs were doing really well the outer zones of cities were doing really well in terms of rental growth but those city centers were seeing a bit not you know subdued demand lots of supply and that was having a negative impact on rents nowhere more so than london but boy it's come back so the pandemic everyone feels is over and everyone's back international demand is back students are back sure. it's not as yeah 
And I mean, on London, you said London more so than ever. I, I kind of, I always look at London and Edinburgh as uh, good kind of examples of the, like obviously London is a global city, Edinburgh probably not quite, but they are definitely tourist hotspots. And I think it was in an Airbnb report that there was something like 86,000 short-term rentals just on Airbnb, so that's not booking.com, that were repurposed during the pandemic back to ASTs. That's a lot of stock to go back. And then also you've got, you mentioned kind of foreign students as well. So that I'm guessing that kind of did make a bit of a dent on the supply side on the market. And now you're slowly maybe seeing those uh, as, as kind of the cities have opened up, travels opened up. Is that making a difference to things as people are coming back into those kind of city centres where tourism is, is quite a big business? It's difficult to comment on the very short lets because they can be kind of falling in between data sets. Sure. But certainly you, could, you, you would expect that that is starting to normalise. It's starting to unwind now. There is still slightly more supply in that rental market in London, but there's a lot of demand coming in. So we're seeing that that demand is now driving up rents in London very, very quickly. And the market is moving so quickly. So another great way we have as assessing what's happening in the market is how quickly it's moving. So how quickly is something being snapped up as soon as it's being listed for rent? And it's moving so quickly in London at the moment. So there's real competition for those rental properties that are out there. And that is a result of students coming back, but but not only international students, just all students who have been studying, who were studying at home for two years, you have, or just living elsewhere. You had people who were in private rental accommodation, just lived elsewhere and they've come back. And I'm very keen to kind of, um, emphasize this isn't a zero-sum game in the rental market in the UK sometimes get asked well hang on well where's where's going down if that's going up it's almost like the rental market sort of just held its breath for two years and now it's breathing out and it's come back uh, to more normal conditions well I guess if you if you kind of look at the bottom end of that rental market you um, typically have people kind of leaving home um, to go into into rental accommodation and then like you say student accommodation is one but also single room shared accommodation as well would be the cheaper end that they'd probably move into those more I kind of call them more transient sectors because people are going to move more frequently I know in London they had a really really tough time on the rents we, we own a few and it was the largest drops were seen there that's now back from from our side but i wonder how is there a big comparison that you're seeing or a big difference between say your shared accommodation your one bed flats versus your three and four bed family home rental prices is, is there a, a difference a big difference in demand that you you're seeing at Zoopla? It, it depends where you are and in the rental market as we know a lot of the flats are, and I would talk particularly about flats rather than HMOs um, because that's where our data is, yeah. is focused but our flats are mainly clustered towards city centres so that really followed this sort of donut comparison sorry which I'm not giving up because I love it but yeah. it's it, it because it, the it was city centres that were most affected by that rental demand maybe easing off during the pandemic mm. that's where flats were affected and people were looking just like in the sales market in the rental market people were looking for flats with gardens but houses with gardens additional space you know, if, if that was something that their income could cope with, you know, looking for that additional space in order to be able to work from home. So we saw it in the rental market. So we've seen a sort of the flats, London, especially in Lo- the flats markets, but especially in London, have sort of been lagging. And yep. that's happened in the sales and rental market. And it feels like they're now um, on their way up as well. 
Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and you mentioned kind of students, but also we're seeing workers back into the office. I mean, there's, there's got to be a headline every day in the media about people getting getting back to work and back to the office, whether it's, I don't know, maybe not five days a week in some sectors, but two or three. And I think the idea during the pandemic that people could kind of, who were based in London, could now go and live in Cornwall and they'd only have to commute one day every two weeks. The reality of that for a lot of industries seems to be that that's not the case and people are going to be required, albeit not five days a week, but a bit more than maybe it was initially expected. Are you seeing that that's the case obviously I know we're very London centric at the moment but maybe with all cities. We can draw conclusions through the prism of the data that we have so people's motivations are not always clear through individual bits of data but certainly you could draw a conclusion from the headlines that you mentioned the headlines that we're reading about people going back into the office and to be honest just walking around city centres you can see that it's back it may be a little bit more quiet on a Monday and a Friday but it's definitely back so looking at the data with that demand for flats back those pied de terres particularly for yeah. certain for certain workers in certain industries that's what they're looking for and then the corporate location relocations as well are back so putting all of that together you could come to that conclusion but what we're unable to do is get the data and figures to tell us that we're kind of you have to put that picture together absolutely and it's it, i mean again from a london point of view we saw kind of just walking around the west end was pretty kind of quick to come back the city is gradually coming back but then you go into these hubs and areas that are very kind of industry focus like canary wharf is a is a good example where still it's very very quiet on a day-to-day -day compared to pre-pandemic levels so i am i do wonder a bit about these very kind of these micro areas or very specific markets about how they're going to fare because you are seeing an awful lot of of uh, empty well not necessarily empty but quieter streets uh, around those areas so it'll be interesting to see if they do come up or maybe if there's some adapting to what industries are going to be filling maybe those offices it's all very interesting any, any thoughts on that point of view it as you say it, it is going to be interesting companies are figuring out what floor space they need what what they want to happen how they want to be working with everyone in their teams so i i, I still think i think some companies are there and um, I think some companies still haven't quite landed on where they want to be. And as you say, the, the office market is is adaptable, in, especially in London. It has adapted before. It will adapt again. And as you say, it's just a case of who will be taking up that space, what space will be created. But all I can say is I'd, I live in the city of London and I've never had to walk off the pavement to get onto the road to walk past the pub, the crowds outside the pub so much as I have over the last month. So that's my own personal monitor of what's going on in the city. And it's pretty lively. And how is London comparing to other cities now? Is it because it started from such a low because of people kind of leaving and, and a lot more kind of supply versus demand that we just kind of spoke about, that it's come back quite strongly? Or is this happening throughout the UK in cities? Because in, in the cities, if we look at the data again, if we look at that kind of falling off of, of rental growth during the pandemic and then the rise, it's been modelled in the major cities across the UK in the same way as London, but just not to the same extreme. The rents didn't fall as far and they haven't bounced back up as much. So it's almost like London is just 
a kind of very amplified version of what was going on in the other cities. And so it's much more tangible and noticeable. Uh, sure. The other cities definitely had maybe rents fell one or two percent, especially for that flat market in the city flats market and city centres, it's bounced back up again. But across all of this, don't forget, when we're looking at a UK basis and we're breaking the data down to, for meaningful insights at a, at a localised level, those donut around the city, so it's that kind of wider commuter zone, has just been rental growth, very steady the whole way through. And sometimes if you even look at the data, take away everything we know about what happened to the pandemic, it's not obvious that something's happened. It just carried on. Mm. So especially, so it's kind of fueled by the demand for those family houses with extra space. And that is where they are. That's where you get the terraced housing with garden seems to be out, you know, it's sitting outside the city centres. So it's just interesting to see that the other cities definitely felt the same. We called it out regularly in our reports, but just not to the same extent as London. Hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Absolutely. Really, really interesting. So we've talked a lot about kind of the demand and supply. The other thing that obviously is, is very key for not just rental prices, but also house prices is the affordability. At the moment, we're, I don't know, inflation's in the news every day, interest rate rises, and is, is a kind of 
massive topic. What are your thoughts on affordability in terms of wages catching up? Because, I mean, we can look at, I look at the ONS quite regularly because I'm a bit, bit sad. And they kind of come up with these stats that say average rents have gone up. I don't know the exact stat, but it's something like two and a half percent in the last year. Now, if you're on the ground, what you'll know is that well, the average rent or the average uh, rental period is about four and a half years in the UK. Obviously, there's a massive kind of difference between property type. But for new rents, new rents were up in the same period by about 13 percent. And up. I get the impression that that's similar with wage growth because if you speak to people that are stuck in their jobs, I know we're having people striking every day at the moment because they're not getting, especially all the government workers aren't, aren't getting those increases. Um, but if you're if you remain in a job and you're trying to get a pay raise every year, you might be lucky to get kind of five percent increase. But if you move job uh, in the same way as we're looking at new rents, the increase is far bigger. Are you seeing that wages are likely to catch up? Obviously, they're going to lag this, but will they be catching up to allow that affordability to continue growing? Or do you see it coming to a bit of a stop? Because we see the media kind of say things like, I don't know, growth is cooling as if it's a disaster, but that's still growth. I mean, growth is growth. It's not negative growth. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, you call out a very interesting theme, which we have flagged before in our reports, which is that this some of the trends we're seeing, we can draw conclusions at a national level, especially when it comes to wages and things like that. But there, it is industry specific. We know, we know that. It's, but it's very hard then to get into granularity about who's moving and where they're working and what that means. But on a general basis, I agree with you entirely. The new rental growth is what we're seeing. And we Again, we call that out very clearly. I read somewhere recently that a lot of landlords have been happy to freeze their rents for people staying in situ. We thought that was going on. I was checking with agents. They were telling me that was the case, but I saw some somebody's done some research on it and that is what's been happening. So if you're staying in your job, maybe not getting the rent wage increases, but staying in your current accommodation and coming to an agreement with your landlord, everything is probably staying quite static for you. On the new rents, we have looked at that according you know we can look at the official wages data which is what we can go off with the official earnings data we are getting to the we're just sort of bumping up against or perhaps a bit beyond the average for affordability on rents that we've seen over the last 10 years so we're just at that 10-year average we're just at the upper echelons of that and could tip over the the you know as we know rental the rental markets operate at a local level so it's it's hard to draw a conclusion at a national level, but what we have to call out is at a regional kind of basis, we're at the stage now where it could start to put a limit on what rental, um, kind of what rents you can ask for. It, each market will come to its natural equilibrium. If you If you put the rents up and people can't afford it, you will not be getting any knocks on your door. So it will come to an equilibrium. And I... I... I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but my personal feelings are rents at the lower income level are almost more um, at risk because if you look at your staples of earnings, staples of of living, sorry, I mean, we, we judge affordability on rents on the percentage of someone's income. But also there's other staples of living apart from shelter, such as food, transport, internet is probably one now, clothing, energy. What are those? How are those going up? And we're seeing before April with energy prices, that would that would be with the lowest 10% of income earners, 
that would make up 7% of their income would be spent on energy costs. Now, after October, that's expected to be between 18 and 20% of their earnings. So what staple is that coming from? Because uh, is, is that going to come from what they can afford to spend of their income on their rent or clothes or internet? Um, and I, th- I, I find that it's those, it's that sector that may be hit may get hit harder and you might see some more volatility in terms of especially from a landlord's point of view for example in in terms of arrears shooting up and and void periods and operational expenses of some of those landlords that were used to maybe i don't know six or seven percent yield well now the operational costs and the frictional costs of operating that property have shot up disproportionately. It can make things very difficult. What what are your thoughts on those different areas of the market from low income to kind of high income? Absolutely. I actually, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to read out what we wrote in our last report. I said, while renters with more disposable income can adjust their property choices in order to limit their rental payments, i.e. they can choose to go to a two-bed apartment rather than a three-bed apartment or or choose somewhere in a slightly different area, those at the more economic end of the market have less choice to do this and will be more impacted by rental rises. So that is what we said in our last report, which is basically just summing up what you have called out. Yeah, much more eloquent than how I put it. Ah, well... I had time to refine it in our report, so that's not a fair comparison, Rod. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th- I think I think that's very interesting. But at the same point, I guess we can look for the rental market at affordability from landlord's point of view, because we're, we've always got to benchmark the investment proposition, really. I guess so. If landlords are coming into the market and they've typically, I don't know, been getting two percent more than the risk-free rate what is that going to look like going forward if um, they're getting mortgages and their typical kind of mortgage might have gone from 3.5% to 4.5%. Yes, it's still very low in the long term, um, looking back at kind of what mortgage costs are. But the reality is their monthly payments on interest only have gone up by sort of 20%. Um, Now, are they going to be putting their rents up by 20%? Well, it would be nice if they could from their point of view, but it comes down to the affordability. So are we going to see even more landlords looking at this asset class and thinking, hmm, is this still a good investment opportunity for me when I'm benchmarking it against other investment options? I know obviously we're We've got huge kind of issues with tax and and various kind of government legislation going in on maybe the smaller landlords and and certainly that's that's helping some of these more corporate landlords pick up market share but again if you look at the stock they're going into a lot of it's multifamily built to rent small a very small proportion of of kind of rental stock do you see a problem on the horizon there? Um, for, for for stock kind of dwindling? There's, when we look at um, our figures, we can see that the properties that have been put up for sale that were previously rented, where landlords are exploring their options um, to sell, that those have been, the numbers of those have been rising in recent years. When we then look at which properties do actually go on to sell, that's remained relatively steady. So we can see, we're, we're kind of consumed from that, that landlords are exploring their options, but then if they are able to secure another tenant 
in their rental property for which there will usually be demand that they're possibly staying put but there's no doubt that landlords are exploring their options but this just underlines the kind of reliance that everyone has on the rental sector and the government is perhaps not kind of recognizing this fact you know it used to be that there was social housing yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that is not available to the same extent so there's housing benefit where the private rented sector is providing that housing so there's you know landlords are definitely ever since 2015 with that additional stamp duty introduction and then the different tax policies as you pointed out uh, mortgage interest relief and all sorts of things we know that landlords you know have been um, some of them, some individuals have been leaving the sector, but some have been increasing their portfolios because they, because it makes sense if you have a, a large portfolio and others have just been reviewing their options. But our data suggests that, you know, some landlords are looking at the opportunities to perhaps cash in. What we can't also tell Rod, though, and I have to make this really clear, is they could be selling and then reinvesting in. And it's very hard for us to tell. But there's no doubt that the landlords were very active in the market during the stamp duty holiday. So that, that stamp duty holiday just made the sums very attractive and, and they were very active during that period. So I'm not seeing a, a huge problem on the horizon. I think landlords have absorbed the changes in the economic landscape before. I think they will do so again. It's a tangible asset class. People like bricks and mortar. But um, I, I would say that there's, you know, that there are things to consider as they review their portfolios year to year. Sure. And it's, uh, I think it's interesting when I don't know, you, you look at this industry from a property investor's point of view and you are certainly it does seem to be that the government is what they've set out to do which seems to be making the industry more professional does seem to be working because although you might get smaller scale landlords starting to leave the market and, and sell up or at least explore their options like you said what you are seeing is a lot more of those larger landlords who have the economies of scale to be professional are starting to pick up more market share. So it's 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 certainly something we're trying to do. Um, but to your point of selling stock and rebuying, we're also selling some stock and rebuying kind of newer stock or even developing out newer stock because we're seeing it as future-proofing. Exactly. Um, and, and I think there's an awful lot of uh, institutional capital coming into this market and has been for the last few years from the fixed income market and, and looking at residential as more of a fixed income play obviously not buying kind of I know, four or five properties it's got a typically it's about a thousand at a time um mm. and and I, and I think that is kind of having a well a positive effect really from a tenant's point of view um because of the type of stock the problem is it's still getting new stock is it's still a very very small market and you touched on social housing i mean at the moment we've got five million people on the waiting list for social housing made up of i think just below two million families which is crazy and um and that's obviously being propped up by the private um by the private um uh, PRS. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of the social housing market and how that affects the rest of um, of, of of the rental market and and I guess house price market? It it is a. I mean, it's a, it's a hugely important part of the mix for the housing market, but it also brings us then to consider what the government's priorities are and and home ownership is definitely something that the the government has talked about a lot and it that in that just makes it clear that the 
kind of the, the government support and policy to help people get onto the housing ladder has to be there as well. If, if that's going to be your, your focus, then that's, and that's why there's been, you know, help to buy is coming to an end, the equity loan, but that's why there's been a real focus on deposit unlock and um, on, you know, the house building sector have got together and come up with their own plan to help first time buyers get a foot on the ladder. First homes, starter homes, I've, I've slightly lost track of all the different names for them now, but then, you know, you know there've been a lot of uh, announcements, but I think there's, there's some, you know, discounted homes for sale that, have, you know, will go ahead now. The developers are, are you know, embracing it and, and going for it. So sure. that's why it's so important. The government has laid out a stall on this and says it wants to help people get a foot on the housing ladder if they want. So th that I think is where um, they're focusing. And, and so that takes up quite a bit of the airtime around the whole housing market debate. And I think that's a fantastic thing. But the reality is a lot of people cannot, um, will not be capable or have the ability or may not want to actually go into home ownership and it's that end of the market like we see with five million people on the waiting list for social homes um do they want 99 percent of people to be able to buy their home i don't think that's realistic and what you're finding is for those people that are in a position where actually they're saving for a home or something like that the rental stock has gone so far down that actually they're it kind of has has these negative effects on what their outcome, uh, which is home ownership, um, was trying to do in the first place. I don't know if you've got any kind of if you agree or disagree with that. Really, I'm I'm very focused on on what what the data is showing us and 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 what the the, the policymakers are, are doing. I mean, we just need a rich mix of housing in the UK so that everyone can achieve. The level of ownership or rental that they need and, and we're not there no, no. i think we're in agreement there <laughs> i think we definitely are um so we've talked a lot about rental prices what about house prices like we said people are concerned about interest rates going up affordability there how much can someone um not just it's not just kind of earning uh, price to earnings but probably what proportion of their salary can cover mortgage costs and we've seen over the past I don't know, decade or so not just low interest rates making that a bit easier but also your average first-time buyer now has a 35-year mortgage term whereas 20 years ago it was 25 years typically there's the amount of earners in a household has moved up from 1.1 percent or 1.4 so what are your thoughts on, I guess, house prices going forward, and where do you where do you see those over the next kind of year or so? So we've seen really strong rises in house prices over the last two years. In the last twelve months alone, house prices are up eight point four percent. We are expecting that price growth to ease. We've been saying that since the middle of last year because we, we talked about that supply and demand dynamic. And it's been very strong in the sales market as well. Loads of demand, not enough supply. That's been, and for family houses in particular, although flats are now making a comeback. So it, that's been putting upward pressure on prices. We do expect that to slow down as we see that demand level starting to normalise, go back to more normal levels. And also with the economic conditions we have with rising interest rates, everyone says, but, but do you think house prices are going to decline, actually fall 
And what we're saying is, you know, the, the, you talked about mortgage lending, but the stress testing and all of the testing around mortgage lending, which was introduced about six, eight years ago, that means that you have a lot of homeowners who can withstand very sharp rises in interest rates. Most of them don't have to because they're on fixed rate loans and will be protected from whatever happens for the next year or two. So um, we're, we're in a market where there's a lot of uh, there has been a lot of lending, but it unlike before the financial crisis, which many of your listeners will be too young to remember, uh, but I remember very well, we don't, we don't have that kind of lending where you know, some lenders were lending 125% of the value of the home. It, this has been very controlled. So you have a lot of homeowners who can withstand in a very healthy employment market. I mean, we talked about wages, but we've got very high levels of employment. So there's, you know, there's a floor under pricing, which we believe will, will mean that we're looking at a slowdown in the rate of house price growth rather than any sort of cliff edge in, in the near future or even into the medium term. Yeah. So really interesting points. So I'm going to pick up on a couple. We talked about kind of when we're talking about growth, I guess we've also got to look at real growth. And I think it's we're still I can't remember what what the percentage is around 10 or 11 percent lower than we were in, in 2007 in terms of real house price growth. Do you... You're stripping out inflation there, Rod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are at the moment with CPI inflation as high as it is, then, you know, any growth is still going to be real terms. We're just going to be falling slightly. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you talked about obviously the, the state of the mortgage market and how robust it, it is at the moment, which is fantastic. But also a lot, of, I can't remember how many, I think it's 40% of homeowners actually don't have any mortgage at all. On, Indeed. On the house. Good point. Yes. So there's an awful, and again, going back to 2007, what we saw there was London house prices didn't actually fall that much, but values fell. And that was about the fact that people didn't have to transact if they were sitting on a, a fair chunk of equity. Whereas if you were in, I don't know, Timbuktu, where the house price was much lower, you might be willing to take a 10% drop on a smaller amount of value because you could go and, I don't know, earn it back at minimum wage doing 30 hours of work. But what we felt was London owners were, were not prepared to lose a bigger chunk of equity. Uh, do you think there's, a, there's an element of that as well, that if affordability becomes too much we may not even see like you said negative growth but we might just see transactions dry up what are your thoughts on that that's a tough one because we came into the beginning of this year we knew there was cloudier economic conditions ahead it was quite clear and there has been one of the busiest first six months of the year that we've ever seen so that it's still definitely happening and what we have to remember I, I take your point but at the same time a lot of homeowners will be sitting on quite significant gains yeah. and even if they aren't achieving the price the asking price that they're asking for they will probably still be achieving a gain mm -hmm. on the property um, the other thing we have seen and we called it out in our last report is a rise in the number of asking prices that are being cut so we're just it feels we're just at that point now where yes there have been a lot of gains and maybe you're, you're asking price you're just going in at the top level and there is a little bit of resistance it is you know the but there's a lot of buyers there but the, the resistance just means that some you know one in 20 of those asking prices are just being trimmed because it we're just maybe they're just hitting that level where where the buyers are like i can't i would really like to buy that property but but i'm not i can't pay that for it so that we're just starting to call that out but again it we're talking about five percent of properties here it's it's not the majority um 
but there's still when you have this demand and supply in the market and people still wanting to make a move it's not just about you know we have to remember these homes are, are not just investments that they're, they're where do you want to live do you want to be near your family do you want to be near the sea these are all you know are, are you um has there sadly been a death in the family or have you had a wonderful birth in the family do you know are there other reasons why you're having to make those moves so that will always drive the market to a certain extent but we are expecting total transactions this year to be around 1.2 million down from 1.5 last year but don't forget 1.5 was perhaps the highest we'd seen for quite some time i mean it's back it's, it's still higher than the um i don't know pre-pandemic averages isn't it Think. 1.2 is just about hitting just a fairly level average of yeah. where we were in the kind of yeah early 210s okay so that's that's i guess can, can give give people comfort what when you're looking at the data then what do you feel are the most important data points that you look at in terms of the housing market and and the rental market when when you would be looking at forecasting future do you have any favorite metrics that your kind of eyes are drawn to on the report first <laughs> i'm smiling when you ask me that because when you know when talking within our team behind the scenes it's a case of putting it all together and it's what we're challenged always to do because you can look at one bit of data and it can seem really interesting but it can't tell you a story until you overlay it with what else is going on now that feels like a complete cop-out you're like personally what's your favorite and um uh, <laughs> I, I have many favorites because i just that's that's why researchers work in research because we just love a chart but um you do have to overlay you could look at the demand Sure. But really, sure. unless you then measure that up with supply in some way, you're cutting it to take account of supply in some way, and then you're looking at the geographical breakdown, and then you're looking at um, you know how fast those markets are moving. Is it adding up to give you a narrative where you're confident to say, yeah, that's what is actually going on? And, and to be honest, that's what we spend a lot of our time doing. Absolutely. It's like we, we spoke about before, um, looking at kind of the London rental price increase, but where did it start? Um, yeah. last year so yeah great great point um what would would you see then as the biggest risks to the housing market on the horizon and what do you think can be done to mitigate them the housing market is so interesting for this reason and i'm sure it's like many markets like this but it we're all involved in it um but it's the fact that it it is driven by market factors supply demand but it's also then cut through with sentiment which can change quite quickly and then government policy which can change overnight yeah. um just like housing ministers i think we're on 13 yeah. in the last 10 years yeah. um yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's um it can it can be affected very quickly or there can be longer term stresses on the market so something that we're you know energy efficiency is a massive theme as we move forward what's going to happen to homes which aren't as energy efficient as we would like them to be what's going to be brought in to help homeowners with that or is it going to affect where which houses people move to there's you know so the energy efficiency and the sort of green agenda more generally is a massive big overarching issue um shorter term we're looking at um what difference you know what government policies are coming in to help homeowners or or renters um you know and to help landlords or to support different areas of the housing market so that could have an impact i think in the very short term we're looking at the economic picture i mean everyone's eyes are trained very firmly on what's going on with the economy what's happening with inflation and how much that could have a sentiment impact on the housing market 
Um, at the moment, as I say, the figures are still showing that there's demand in the market, people wanting to move. Um, people who are feeling secure in their positions and their jobs, still feeling confident to make that move to a different property. Um, some people might be downsizing. So again, the economic changes are less relevant for them. So at first time buyers, the bank of mum and dad are putting in Herculean efforts because they just are coming up with bigger and bigger deposits for first time buyers who are active in the market. So there's different factors will affect those different groups. But at the moment, just generally, if you have a more cloudier economic outlook, sentiment in the market can start to change. And as you and I know, that can affect the market then. So that's something, again, we're calling out. I'm not seeing anything that we haven't called out in our reports, which is that could start to have a downward impact. So you've got this floor under pricing, demand, supply, very, you know, lending has been very regulated and stress tested. So that's all putting a floor under pricing, but at the same time, just a weight on the price growth of this cloudier economic outlook. And in fact, that's what we're forecasting. So we're forecasting a slowdown from where we are at the moment, about 8.3% growth to around 3%. So end of this year, early next year, just that's the kind of level of kind of easing off in that price growth that we're going to see. Fantastic. Grania, thanks so much for your time today. If you've mentioned your reports a few times, if people are listening, <laughs> sorry, which is fantastic. If, if if our listeners wanted to have a look at these, is there a link that we can put in our show notes um, for them to kind of maybe sign up to? to absolutely, receive? absolutely. Yeah, it's on Zoopla Advantage, and I'll make sure they get that. So your your listeners will are mainly landlords. So they're mostly investors, de investors. And developers. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Absolutely. So will I email that to you? Yeah, if you if you ping an email over to me and then I can put a link in the show notes for it, that would be fantastic. Brilliant. Great. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely brilliant and I've uh, loved all the detailed insight you've been able to give us. So thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Good to chat. Thank you.